0: This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me and my brother, Chris. In this episode, Chris and I welcome an expert to talk about decisions and mistakes made in one of America's most popular game shows. Podcast listener, come on down. God, that was lame. And we can't use this music the whole time because we don't want to get sued, but we can enjoy it here for a second. The Price is Right has been on the air for 50 seasons this fall. It's pitted common household knowledge against strategy for years and years. So in this episode of Game Theory, my brother and I welcome an academic who's researched the decision and strategy involved in winning The Price is Right you'll find out that people make some really weird mistakes, naturally or unnaturally, that the bright lights burn too bright for some, and that the game really does have some winnable strategy. I got a guy for that. We're gonna talk about the price is right, And I'm going to bring on now Justin Bergner to talk about The Price is Right. Justin, you've got a book coming out, and you've been studying The Price is Right extensively in recent years.
1: Yes. um, I've actually been uh, working on this project, now turned book manuscript, uh, for almost three years. So thank you so much, Nick and Chris, for having me on the Game Theory Podcast this evening to discuss The Price is Right and... My manuscript it's titled solving the prices right and it's particularly timely because the show just started its 50th anniversary season Wow they had their, Dang. yeah I can't believe it they've done over 9,000 episodes
0: I do have a quick um, question in your studies did you happen to study any of the prices right episodes in March of 2010 is that included in the data set
1: no, ah, so, that's when
0: my ex girlfriend was on at that point in time. So I just wanted to make sure that she was studied as well as possible.
1: Oh wow! Okay, that's, <laughs> uh, that's interesting. <laughs> there are websites. There's a TPIRStats.com okay. where oh. you can actually go and see the stats for Prices Right episodes going back like 20 years. So if you want to find that particular episode and what happened to her, you can. Oh, um, I, I, I watched.
0: Sorry, I said I watched
1: <laughs> yeah the way that I approached it was I decided to focus on seasons 47 and 48 in their entirety that was 356 episodes uh, airing from uh, September 2018 to June 2020 uh, was pre-COVID so we still had fans um, in the audience under the sort of normal setup and um, it provided me with, you know, 356 shows uh, and 2,136 instances of contestants row bidding and 2,136 pricing games. So I thought it was an ample sort of recent uh, data set. Uh, so that's what I was doing. I would take some days off and binge watch episodes. I went down to my high school reunion in DC and watch like dozen episodes on the Amtrak down from Connecticut (laughs) to watch on the way back. My kids watched a lot of my episodes with me too, so it was a good sort of mathematical experience for them too.
2: Yeah, they must be troopers. I bet they have the song stuck in their head after watching all those episodes.
1: Yeah, they definitely do. Um, so,
2: so you, you chose to look at seasons 47 and 48. Is, is there any reason for anyone to think that that might be a unique set of data or is that like a representative cross cut for the entire duration of the prizes? Right. Are there like new games or new rules or anything like that during those seasons?
1: Um, so I guess a new game comes out every few years. They might have a couple games out this year cause it's the 50th season. Um, One or two of those are just for the 50th season, I think, and then maybe one or two are sort of will have staying power. But I wanted data that was sort of relatively recent because um, when you actually get into the pricing games, and we're probably not gonna talk as much about those this evening, there's a whole element of heuristics in the pricing games. Mm -hmm. Like in certain car games, the price of the car always ends in zero. In certain car games, the price of the car never ends in zero. So those types of heuristics are sort of created by the game show, usually to make the game easier, but they could change at any time. So for the heuristics part of the show, it helped to have recent seasons. And then I wanted complete seasons, so it made for a nice data set.
2: Yeah, that sounds like a nice, neat way to to kind of package things. One of the things I was curious about when uh, I was reading through your manuscript, I, I wonder if Switching to Drew Carey, which it's crazy to think that it was what 15 years ago now. Yeah. I wonder if there was any change in, you know, not just the host, but did people, were people more inspired by Drew Carey? Were they more aggressive with him? Cause I know I would have been a big Drew Carey guy. So I wonder if, uh, you know, if, if, if somebody could be, uh, enterprising enough to dig into TPIRstats.com and check out if there's uh, any behavioral differences between when Bob Barker, the legend, was hosting versus, you know, Drew Carey's run?
1: You probably could. Uh, I imagine things like contestants row bidding haven't sort of changed in their outcomes, but it'd be curious to see, you know, the win rate in the pricing games, which is sort of at the 49% level um, in seasons 47 to 48, if that was, you know, higher or lower, uh, going back in history. I thought Drew sort of had a bit of a slow start, but he's really come into his
0: element. Big shoes to fill for sure. Okay, so I, well, let's get into it a little bit. I think The Price is Right seems so simple in that if you just went to the mall or your strip mall or Amazon often, you think that this is a game of me versus the facts. However, when you start to break it down, you understand that there are mathematical probability advantages to be gained as there are in almost any sort of game like this. So if I were going to be on the Prices Right, rather than trying to go out and study the price of groceries and cosmetics and cars, what would be your first piece of advice to me? I have a hint based on your manuscript, but I'm, I'm gonna, I want to hear what you have to say. What would your, your first piece of advice to me be to get off of Contestants Row? <laughs>
1: well, the first piece of advice would be to, you know, read my book when it comes out. Uh, <laughs> Click the link in the description, yeah. Uh, Spring 2003, I'm working with a publishing imprint that specializes in intelligent nonfiction for a general audience, so I'm really Mm. excited about that. Um, But, you know, if we focus in on contestants' row bidding, which is the the most game-theoretic part of the show, and then I guess the showcase showdown also is, in many ways, a game-theoretic exercise. But if we focus on contestants' row bidding, You know, the goal in contestants row bidding is to be the closest to the actual retail price without going over and bidding on the item up for bids. And, you know, you bid from left to right, including wrapping around. Um, And I guess there are three major mistakes that contestants uh, make in contestants row. So bidding, so the first is a lot of people, particularly the first bidder, focus focused on making the best point estimate bid. Mm. So they'll say, okay, I think this item costs $1,000, so maybe I'll bid $1,000, you know, the little cushions, so I'll bid $900. And the irony is that if the first contestant makes a good bid, what's likely to happen is one of the later contestants are going to come on and just bid slightly over that good bid. And so it's really the later contestants that can think more about exactly what the item is worth and you know, translate that more directly into the bid. The earlier bidder should be thinking more strategically, more game theoretically about bidding. And the other two mistakes contestants make are there's just an egregious level of underbidding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first bidder in the, the bidding sequence won 18% of the time, the second bidder 20% of the time. The third bidder 22 percent of the time and the fourth bidder 41 percent of the time so justin sounds like
2: of- your best advice would be to never be early on in the bidding just <laughs> go last every go time last. <laughs> is it could it, it, i i would go on the show call dibs for last i mean those are huge disparities That's huge
1: yeah that is a huge disparity unfortunately you don't control what order you bid in so the first round of bidding, it goes from the left to the right, and then whoever wins goes up on stage, and whoever's called down in that person's place has to bid first, and then it goes from left to right, wrapping around. So, yeah, if you could do that, um, all the more power to you, but I, I, that's not in the card. So, um, but was, what's even more shocking, and what you do have control over, is the degree of underbidding. And the underbidding was so egregious, in contestants row, that the highest bid you know, in contestants row won about 50% of the time. And wow. the last bidder, who's obviously in poll position bidding last, won 64% of the time with the highest bid. So there are multiple explanations for the underbidding, and there have been some academic articles that have studied it, but it was just something that each contestant if they were aware of that bias, could take advantage of even the first contest, the first bidder who you know has the hardest task ahead ahead of him or her.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to jump in real quick. And so in your in what we read in the materials that you prepared, you kind of point something out about the one dollar bid, and it's like the the one dollar element of betting and bidding. You see it in Jeopardy all the time with how much you wager on Final Jeopardy, right? So you want to win by one dollar or whatever. And in here, in, in The Price is Right, I see that as well. How many times do you see someone have a good bid and followed after that either the second to last or the last person bids $1 because they think everybody went over or they bid $1 more than the highest bid on the table at the time? But I think that in, in your, your work, you pointed out that the $1 bid is kind of a cop-out. People are assuming that everybody overbid and that's almost never the case as, you, as you're describing.
1: Right. So... Um Yeah, the $1 bid, everyone loves to do it. It's really cool, particularly the last bidder. Um, But the $1 bid only won 26% of the time for the last bidder. Wow. And the last bidder, you know, won on average 41% of the time. And the underbidding was so egregious that that last bidder had bid $1 above the highest bid. Every time he or she had bid $1, they would have won 44% of the time Double. instead of 20% of the time of the $1. But that's how egregious the underbidding was, and that's how much people got overly excited about the $1 bid. That's I wonder
2: if that's because people are... So So if, if for the one person out there listening who has never seen The prices right. Right, uh, first of all, do yourself a favor, stop listening to us and go find a recording of it. Sure. Uh, but second of all those people uh, you know who might not be aware one of the mechanics of the game in contestant's row is that if you overbid that means you're you're out even if you're the closest person to the actual retail price but you bid $1 more than it actually costs you're you you lose and so that kind of puts an artificial ceiling on where people can bid because if you're if your numbers are to be believed then you know it's in everybody's best interest to just go up there and bet crazy high numbers like a million dollars or whatever. Uh, But the the mechanics of the game prevent people from doing that. And I think you pointed out in your materials, people might be a little bit disproportionately afraid of that consequence, even though it's not really likely that
1: they're going to overbid. Well, yeah. So, I mean, the contestants overbid uh, across, you know, bidders one through four, about 24% of the time. You can actually do some game theory work on sort of a very simplified contestants' row bidding exercise or setup, and it, it, they should be going over 40% of the time. I mean, they're so scared of going over, and I think that the the rules of the contest are presented in such a way as to scare them. They they should be thinking about not "I can't win if I go over," rather, my chances of winning are not that high if I don't actually risk going over, because you know. The way the game theory math works is the earlier bidder should be bidding very high, even without the bias towards underbidding. But the earlier bidder should be sort of bidding high and then the later bidders should be coming down. And then when you add the underbidding bias in real life, it's just very um, important to try and go high if you're an early bidder, it's sort of the best place on the number line where you can sort of stand at a decent chance of winning.
2: Yeah, I, I, I see here in, uh, in the manuscript here, you mentioned that in, in, in the early stages of COVID in spring of 2020, uh, people started taking risks that were kind of disproportionate to the likelihood of, you know, so for example, so you mentioned people walking on like the shoulders of busy streets because they're more afraid of the passing chance of catching COVID than they are getting hit by a car. I'd like to take this opportunity to plead with the people of I I live in, you said you came down down to DC. I live in DC right now and I just want to beg the people of DC, stop running in the bike lanes. (laughs) You're not safer there. You're not protecting other passersby and, I'm going to hit you on accident one of these days, and I won't mean it, and I'm sorry in advance, but please, that's not the risk that you have to worry about here. And same is the case here on the Price is Right. The risk you have to worry about isn't overbidding, the risk is underbidding and cutting your odds of making off contestants' row.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But there are all sorts of reasons for why contestants underbid. Um, You know, the fear of going over is certainly like, you know, up there. But there are other reasons, you know, if you're, if the item up for bids is unfamiliar, you have a tendency to come and go, you might be used to a sales price, um, there might be multiple items, like a collection of luxury goods, and you might not really do the math.
0: You found Um, that you, you pointed that out and that was honestly the most interesting thing that you, you found and, and wrote about that I didn't know existed, that if people are unfamiliar with the product. They are more likely they're not less likely to know the value they are more likely to undervalue the product that blew my mind that people would think like, well, I don't really care about an Xbox, so I guess it's worth two hundred dollars Well, no, it's about seven hundred dollars like they'd think that it's it's less valuable to me because I am not invested in this as a thing that exists, so therefore it must not be that valuable
2: that yeah, did w- that did you did you find there were any like any types of prizes that were more or less likely to have that kind of bias in place? Like are people more familiar with cars than they are with grandfather clocks or whatever it is they're giving away?
1: Well, um, yeah. So the unfamiliar items tended to be items that were a little off the beaten path, like a a jukebox,
2: Mm. which that'd be a rad prize. Frankly, I'd rather have that than the money. It'd be good right back there.
1: Electric bike or, you know, that is relatively new. Or if there are high-end features to a, a television, people weren't used to those high-end features. Um, but if you look at if you look at the real world that we're in, the business world, you know, in a merger auction, the seller of the company needs to give data to the buyers um, such that they know the full value of the company. If they don't give them enough data, they won't make a bid that captures the full value of the company. If you don't provide enough um, information on a product that customers want to buy, they're not going to really pay the amount that you want them to pay or that the item is worth. So this is something that we experience every day in our real lives. It just it makes sense in our real life. It doesn't make sense on the prices, right? There.
2: So are are you getting at uh, at maybe the importance of marketing? I mean, if a company markets a product and clearly explains its value in some way, then consumers are more informed and they're more likely to. You know whether they recognize the value or not, they understand that it costs higher than they might have if they didn't have that information. And so the company stands to benefit from having a more informed consumer base.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh, that's fascinating because you know that's true in college. you guys know that that's true in college tuition rates? I just read a study it? about this in the Wall Street Journal where there are two things that influence where people go to school. Number one is where they're ranked in the U.S., Rankings, U.S. News and College Report, whatever that thing is called, the rankings. Number two is tuition cost. If it costs more to go there, they believe it's more valuable. So I I listened to his thing where you can, this happens all the time. They wouldn't name sources, but places like Duke and Stanford say, well, I'm not going to pay 70. I'll give you 40. And they would say, sure. That is just advertising. That number on college tuition is just advertising. And that's sort of what I feel like is happening here. Where you are like, well, it must be this because they said it's worth that.
1: Yeah. Wow. So the last, the last cause of underbidding, but it's actually was, is the anchoring effect. And I don't know if it, it's not really a cause of underbidding so much as it is a mechanism by which the underbidding propagates. Mm-hmm. So if the bidder comes in low for any of the reasons that we recently mentioned, then that low bid causes the latter bids to in turn come in lower, whether those latter bids are influenced by what they think is a good low bid or they're just anchored because it's sort of the first number they see in the context of the item. So that actually has a huge impact of causing, you know, an initial low bid by the first bidder or the second bidder to transmit through the process through the second and the third bidder, sometimes even the fourth bidder.
0: Yeah, let's, we should probably take a minute to just briefly explain what anchoring is I recently had a couple too many beers during a fantasy football draft and just decided to draft based on anchoring, and it was so successful. I completely just, like, I, I messed with the psychology of everyone in my league because I used anchoring as a tactic to, to, to screw up the value of players. It's unbelievably successful. So, Chris, I... Not a mathematician. I went to party school. Anchoring is the idea that whoever guesses first sets a baseline for where something is going to happen. So if I ask you how tall is that tree, I say 1,000 feet. You're like, mm, it's probably not 1,000, probably 800, but the tree, the tree is actually 200 or whatever. But like, I said that, so you think, oh, well, it's probably closer. There, there's true? there's this
2: kind of there's this kind of principle in chess too. I mean, obviously it's it's a different thing, I and mean, you know, chess is a board game that's a little bit less mathematical than than the anchoring bias. But you know, there's there's this adage that the first few moves that you make with pawns really set the terrain for the rest of the game, and in a lot of cases, like that's true. I mean, you know, I, I used to play the French Defense a lot, and that's one where the pawns get locked up, and oftentimes the first move of the game that I make. Uh, it's there until the end of the game you know the the whole the whole negotiation back and forth between the armies is based around that first setup and that's the case with anchoring too and the, uh, our, our uncle Craig one time was uh tasked <laughs> with going walking down the corner to pick up one of those little newspapers out of the the boxes where you just like put in the money and, yeah, and open yeah. it up and uh, our our aunt glory said how much does it cost and he goes twelve dollars and she, oh that's ridiculous whatever so she gave him ten bucks and I walked with him and he's like, Now let this be a lesson to you. I'm gonna come back here with eight seventy-five and I'm gonna be a hero.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's but and in price is right, it makes total sense because the first person has no expertise in the chess set that's up for bid or whatever, but they're like, I don't know, fifty-five dollars. And everyone's like, Well, there's a 65. data point. I must acknowledge this data point. In my in my fantasy football draft, what I did is I drafted a quarterback with my first two picks. I created a run. I overvalued them to see if I could create a run, and it did, and it left me completely wide open to take all of the other undervalued players because everyone freaked out because I overdrafted. I created a run out of total bullshit just to see if I could, and it worked incredibly well.
2: Maybe you'll finally win your league. Justin, did you you ever see any contestants uh, trying to use – like Were they obviously trying to establish an anchor that they knew would be to some advantage to them in some way? Or, or is it just something that everyone was just kind of susceptible to?
1: Yeah, it was more that people were susceptible to it. Um, so it was very hard to measure. I mean, just anchoring is tough to statistically measure. Um, I did some sort of more statistical analysis. But the one sort of easy way to see anchoring and explain it is that, It was very common for zero contestants to overbid Hmm. uh, in a particular um, bidding round, much more so than would have been predicted by independent bids. Oh, that's interesting. And the other side of the ledger, it was much more common for three of the four contestants to overbid than would be expected by independent bids. So that was probably the easiest tell there to... um, sort of explain or to showcase the anchoring. There are also some more advanced statistical ways you can look at it, um, but that's not worth going into (laughs) here.
2: Yeah. You probably got some Greek letters coming up in the math required to calculate that out. That's that's, that's the point at which I'm going to go ahead and defer to the people that write the books.
0: Yeah, that's you. That's just, um, so you let's talk about some real life applications for the prices, right? So first of all, uh, found your blog blogs available in the show notes for anybody uh, that wants to click through the show notes and your roommate problem I found to be particularly interesting is like a weird kind of poker showdown between roommates and like valuing something to comparison. But you also said in the Price Is right? There's, there's a real life application for admission into college. Do you want to explain that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, Thank you, Nick, for mentioning uh, my website and blog. So popculturemath.com is the website and blog. Um, It's the platform that encompasses the book and potentially some future endeavors. And I have a Twitter handle at popculturemath as well if you want to follow that. But in regards to the real life, um, I guess, read-throughs. you know, when you're applying to college or graduate school, you know, there are a couple of key metrics like grades and standardized tests that everyone's really focused on. But in as much as everyone's focused on that, um, you're not really sort of carving out a differentiated sort of application. To carve out a differentiated application, you really want to focus on interesting extracurricular activities, leadership, activities, maybe something entrepreneurial or adversity you've overcome, because they're looking at you on a multidimensional basis. And, you know, I guess in the case of Price is Right Bidding, it's just one dimension, sort of the number line. You know, here when you're applying to college, it's you know six, seven, eight dimensions, but you're still trying to carve out the largest probability of success. And if you just focus on grades and GPA, well, guess what? Everybody else is focusing on grades and GPA. You know, it's like trying to you know, bid based on the best point estimate, on um, the price is right, only to be sort of clipped by a later bidder who has, you know, better grades in GPA and comes along after you. So that's sort of one example. I realize um, you know, it's a little bit different. It's obviously not a sequential game. It's a simultaneous game. And then the other example is the NCAA tourney pool, which is uh, more in the fun category. Um, You know, if everybody is inclined to pick the most likely team to win the tournament, Mm -hmm. um, you know, your best way of creating an entry that maximizes your probability of success is to actually pick a team that still has decent odds of winning, but that is not being picked by the large herd of entrants. Because that way you create the, you know, a realistic Set of scenarios that could actually come to fruition where you'll win because it's not your overall point tally, it's your overall point tally relative to all the other thousands of entrants. So yeah. it's just a smaller. i I call the concept sort of broadening your bid. It's just about how do you create a large probability of success, you know, when people yeah. tend to sort of crowd.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. So I, I play a lot of daily fantasy football and basketball. I don't know if you're familiar. And I, Chris, I don't know if you do that. But the idea is that no. you draft a team, they're all the same or whatever, and you're in a pool of between two to like seven or 800,000 entries. You have a limit to like 100 entries per person or whatever. But in order to increase your odds, right, say if you finish in the top 25%, you'll get your money back or, or a little bit less or a little bit more or whatever. But the winners get... Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. In order to try to win, the only reasonable, cooperative thing to do is to bet on something that's not likely to happen, but that is likely to make you the unique person. I'll give you an example. The best fantasy football player in the world right now is Christian McCaffrey. Two weeks ago on Thursday Night Football, Christian McCaffrey sustained a, a hamstring injury that was serious the person that won the fantasy football mega million maker was a person that didn't have Christian on his team, which if you were trying to win fantasy, you'd be like, well, you have to have McCaffrey. You're like, well, this guy was like, but if I don't, and he gets hurt in football, I'm going to win. And that's what happens. Like, that's exactly the point where, like, you have to have the most likely thing that's, like, sort of likely to happen, I think. It's sort of what you're trying to say, right?
1: Yeah, no, that's a phenomenal sort of strategy. I mean, you can't go in and pick, like, a team that has no chance of winning i mean that's like bidding five thousand dollars for tv and contestants well, it's just-
2: so, you, so you wouldn't want to do like like kevin malone's strategy if you get 10,001 odds on anything you take it Bam. john take cougar it. mellencamp in line for an oscar he's gonna be a rich guy so you're saying you shouldn't do that
1: <laughs> well i think there are better ways to approach it like what your uh colleague did in the Fantasy sure,
0: my strategy in the NCAA tournament. I think I'm not to pat myself on the back. I call it, I would like to do studies. When I'm a little bit too lazy for this, I went to party school, but I call it a little it bit narrative too lazy gambling narrative mathematics. Where <laughs> if I can, as a sports fan, envision a world in which this happens, but it's not the thing that everyone else is doing, then I can then I would take that. For example, I won a, a bracket and won $200 when Villanova won for the first time because, like, well, that's a basketball school, I can see it on CBS in my brain, I can see that happening. Where, if I, there's no reason to bank on the number one, two, three overall seats. It's like, well, that's obviously going to happen. But, like, what could happen? Well, Pittsburgh is not going to win. But Villanova could. I could see Villanova winning. So, I screw it up, put him down. That kind of thing. For example, we all know that Notre Dame will never win anything ever. <clears throat> okay. So, all right. Chris, well, let's, mater, let's, we get out of, let's get out of fantasy land. out of on them
2: as the bracket winner ever. Un- unbelievable. So, it, it, it sounds like the way that what Nick what, what Nick is describing here is exactly what Justin was talking about earlier when you see deviations from what would be expected under the ideal conditions like that's the that's the point of the uh, of betting on the unique thing that's the that's the psychological biases that drive this narrative betting as opposed to playing the true optimal game theoretic approach
1: Yeah that's all very interesting I mean I'm sure there are dozens of examples that You know, others could come up with uh, that would leverage the similar concept. I mean, you know, just taking it back to the prices, right? I mean, you want to create the greatest probability of success, which means carving out as large of a portion of the meaningful sort of range on the number line that you can.
0: So I I wanted to, we'll wrap up on this because I think it ties in nicely with sports. And I, I genuinely believe that between poker, chess and sports, you can make a metaphor for anything in the world. So I'm going to tie it back to the prices. Right. That's because
2: those are the things that we know.
0: Right, correct. Yes, and I'm not interested in expanding my horizons. Thank you very much. So <laughs> in the in the prices Right, at, a concept that you touched on that I think is absolutely fascinating with psychology is that people stopped underbidding At an epidemic level, once they started to realize that the show was almost over, like their chance to get off the stage was off. So you kind of pointed out that once they realize I got to get out of contestants row, if I really want to play this game, I'm going to start being more aggressive, which suggests that, like, you know, as you pointed out, that they need to be more aggressive with higher bids at the beginning. But also that once the clock starts ticking, once the realization sets in or the adrenaline sets like settles down, then they start thinking more strategically and less like freaking out and not trying to be aggressive.
1: Yeah. No, so the last round of, of bidding in contestants row, the sixth, I guess, round of bidding, there was, you know, much less underbidding. It was really only that last round. Still not a, I mean, they still underbid more than they should, but it was it was much more modest.
2: Wow. Well, Justin, I have two quick questions for you. Uh first Physically, how much force should somebody apply when they're spinning the wheel? What is did did you calculate the optimum for that?
1: I I don't even know how heavy it is. Like yeah. I, I need to on the show myself. Um,
2: Someone should do a, a TPIR stats analysis of the wheel. Like what's the what's the physics behind that? That's yeah,
1: I I just solved it. I solved it assuming that you couldn't sort of finesse your spin to land on a certain number. Yeah. Um, so. You won't go to the details there, but you can sort of figure out using game theory as well, you know, what the first spinner should stop at. And, spin. And, and you
2: did, you did in your book, Yeah, you said that there's a certain threshold, like 65 cents for the first spinner and 55 for the second spinner, I think. Interesting. That's now, the, the second question I have is, after you've watched all of these episodes, you've done all this analysis, you're the Price is Right guy, uh, are you still a fan of the show? <laughs> Just for entertainment value. And if you are, what's your favorite game or segment to watch?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm still a fan of the show. I'm taking a hiatus from watching new episodes. I did watch the first week of season 50 because they had a million-dollar prize. Whoa. Whoa. day of the week. No one No one won it, Obviously. unfortunately. Mm. My favorite game is Hot Seat. And Ooh. I don't know if you're familiar with Hot Seat.
0: Um, no, but, but we will look into hot, it.
1: Yeah, in hot seat, you have twenty-five or thirty seconds, and you're shown five items, and you guess whether the displayed whether the price of the item it's like you know some sort of fifty to a hundred dollar item whether the price of the item is higher or lower than the price shown. Mm. And they go and reveal the items, the price of the items one at a time, and you win escalating amounts of cash if you're correct, and you can stop it any time. Uh, but if you're wrong then of course you lose everything it's,
0: it's a exactly. lot of tension that's filling out a bracket chris that's filling out a bracket it is i'm more of a it's, plinko it's man binary myself over and over and over it's binary and speaking of that one last last question are you interested in coming on in march to help us fill out our show bracket we're going to do a, a game theory bracket we're going to have everybody help us you want to come back in march and just really quick five minutes and tell us who our national championship should be
1: i would love to but i've done really poorly in the tournaments, so. Yeah.
0: You're the you do, Justin. The better you do, man. The less you care, the better you do. I'm telling you, absolutely. Well, Justin, I appreciate I like- you coming on, and I I want to remember remind everyone that all of the links, to all of this stuff, will be in the show notes to check out the book, which should be coming out this spring. Correct? No, no,
1: it's actually March 2023. The 2023, whole 2023, publishing- Sure systems are kind of backlogged, unfortunately. No, that's totally fine.
0: I mean, the show, the internet is forever. The show and YouTube, it will be forever. People can reference this at any point in time. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for reaching out, and uh, we had a really great time. We're going to bring you back to help us win uh, Warren Buffett's billion dollars. Looking forward to that, too. All right.
1: Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Okay.